continue in our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we've twice heard Jesus use these words you've heard it say of old. And Jesus uses those words five times in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And today is the third reference in the text, and it's taken from Matthew 5, reading from verse 33. Jesus says again, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black or blue or blonde or pink or any color. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And so when you think that Jesus in verse 33 is saying that you have heard that it was said to those of old, the first thing we want to do is we want to try and find what Jesus may have been referring to. And in Exodus 20 verse 7, Jesus says, these, uh, the, the scripture says, you shall not take the name of the, God, of the Lord your God in vain. Everybody's heard that one, right? Deuteronomy 6.13 and 10.20, it says, Fear God, serve him. And some translations say, if you take an oath, make sure you only take it in his name. And in Leviticus 19.12, it says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God, for I am the Lord. The first thing I want to clarify about this text is it's not about oaths. It's not just about the practice of swearing oaths. We have to look a little bit beyond that because in this generation, in 2022, how many of us regularly take oaths? When's the last time anyone took an oath who hasn't given evidence in a court of law? So those few hands that went up had to go down. So because we're speaking about something that's a little alien to us, I think it's important for us to spend a little bit of time trying to understand what Jesus is saying to us today in 2022. It's not about oaths. It's not about the practice of swearing oaths. We have to look beyond them. Now, to prove to you that Jesus didn't abolish the practice of oaths, in Matthew 26, 63 to 65, when Jesus is before uh, the high priest, it says the high priest has to say an oath because Jesus is being silent. The high priest is trying to get Jesus to, to say something and Jesus won't respond. And so in 63, the high priest answers and says to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus doesn't say, don't make oaths. Jesus responds. And Jesus actually tells the truth in response to the oath. He says, it is as you said, nevertheless I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So the oath that the high priest takes prompts Jesus to respond. So Jesus is taking the practice of oaths seriously, so it's not about abolishing oaths. Paul in Romans 9.1 says, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. He says something similar in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 23. Moreover, moreover I call God as witness against my soul, that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. And so Paul is entering into the practice of oaths. And God himself in Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 18, the text says, swore an oath. 
And so somehow it's about more than oaths, isn't it? Jesus on the face of it seems to be saying that oaths are the problem. So if oaths themselves are not the problem, what is it actually about? And I think it was about trying to separate oaths from God. You see, because if I want to convince you of something, if I bring God into it, then the problem I have with that is that I'm talking to God. And if I'm talking to God and swearing this oath in the presence of God, then maybe God will have something to say about whether I don't perform the oath that I have just sworn. And so you find yourself in this issue that you want, to, you want to convince people, you want to persuade them of something, that the thing you're saying is the truth, but you're, you're afraid of bringing oaths into it that have God to do with it because then God is paying a lot of attention to what you say. And so if it's not about that, what is it about? And it's about the thing that's up on the screen at the moment. It's about creating loopholes to lie. It's about creating loopholes to lie. Let me give you an illustration of this. In Matthew 23, 16 to 22, this is a very clear illustration of what was going on at the time. And pay attention to this. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he says to them, Woe to you, blind guides, because you say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. So in other words, if you perform an oath, I swear by the temple that I'm going to do this, it doesn't actually mean anything. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you're obliged to perform it. Doesn't that seem ridiculous to us? today. And it goes further, fools and blind, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is obliged to perform it. So you see what's going on here? It's about creating space to not tell the truth. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it, and by all the things on it, he who swears by the temple swears by it, and him who dwells in it, and he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So no matter what you do, you can't separate your oaths from God. So if I swear by the table, who made the wood, who created the table? God. If I swear by my shoe, who made the person, who designed the shoe, who made the shoe, and all the aspects that go into it, at the end of the day, you can't get away from the fact that you can't separate an oath from God. But instead, what the Pharisees were trying to do was to create space to tell lies. And so one day they would say, I swear by this, and it means I'm going to do it. But when I swear by this, it means that I'm not going to do it. When I swear by this, it means that I'm bound by it. When I swear by this, it means I'm not bound by it. When I swear by the carpet, it means I'm bound by it. When I swear by the tape on the carpet, it means I'm not bound by it. It's all about creating loopholes to lie. It's all about creating room for deceit. It's all about creating these things amidst having categories of lies. And so even though in 2022 we don't understand oaths, we can talk about the categories of lies that we have today, can't we? And I hope this is as uncomfortable as last week was uncomfortable. Because when we start to speak about categories of lies and I ask you, what are they? Let's start here. Who thinks acting, acting, theatrical acting, is that okay? You realize that the word that we have hypocrite comes from, comes from the definition of an actor. And so if I'm watching a movie and someone's pretending to be someone that they're actually not, we watch it and we say it's okay because they're just entertaining me. And we go to theaters and it's okay to watch people telling lies and pretending to be people they're not and we say that's okay and that's steeped in our society. But that's okay, isn't it? What about exaggeration? 
Is exaggeration okay? Is that another category of lie that we have? In, if I tell you that this is the greatest cup of coffee in New York, is that okay? If I tell you that this is the greatest anything in the history of humanity, is that okay if it's not? But we do it all the time. If I do it in order to sell something to you, is it okay then? Because if I want to sell you a car and I tell you that this is the greatest car ever designed, and the manufacturing that went into this car is the greatest manufacturing any car has ever seen and, and you should be in it, then I'm shifting into another category of lie because what I'm beginning to do then is I'm beginning to flatter you. Is flattery okay? Is it okay to tell someone you look great when they don't? Is it okay to tell someone that the thing they've just done was excellent when it wasn't? Is it okay to say to someone, good job, when it wasn't a good job? And the truth was, it wasn't a good job. Is it great, is it okay to say to someone that you can sing well when they can't? And they find out that they can't sing well when they're on national television on American Idol. And it's too late then because someone should have told them the truth earlier. Is it okay to tell Mr. Jackson it's okay to take propofol to sleep? Because you want his money. And you want his association, you want to be close to him, and you want to not tell him the truth. Because the scripture tells us that the king's greatest friend is the person that tells them the truth. Because if I don't tell the king that he has no clothes on, at some point he's going to find out in, to his embarrassment that he's walking down the street naked. Is bombasticism okay? Is it okay to boast? Is it okay to tell you about myself more than is true about myself? in order to persuade you of something? Is it okay to speak with a forked tongue? Do you understand the significance of the term there? You wanna go back and look it up, you'll find references in 1626 literature to speaking with a forked tongue, even in Milton's Paradise Lost. You'll also find it in, 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 in transcripts of the beginnings of this country, in conversations with repatriating Native Americans. The concept of speaking with a forked tongue originated because it meant that I will tell you that I'm not going to do something, then I'd go and do exactly the opposite. I'm not going to, John, we're going to do a deal. You're going to give me your land, and you can live on that land for the rest of your life, is what I say to your face. And when John leaves, I kill him and all his ancestors. Is that okay? Is a facade okay? Is it okay to pretend to other people that we've got it going on? Or is that not okay? Is it okay when someone at the cash register says, how are you doing, to lie? And to say, great, when you aren't great? Is it okay to say, let's have lunch, when you don't mean it? We should connect. We should go out. We should spend time, and you don't mean it. What's a white lie? What's a half-truth? What about propaganda? Perjury? What about rhetoric? You see, in about 400 BC, or 4 BC, um, Aristotle said something, and he summarized the concept of rhetoric. And rhetoric is something that, how many of you have studied rhetoric and have learned that in order to present, you should understand the tools and techniques of rhetoric? None of you? How many attorneys here? All right. 
Let me tell you what rhetoric is. Rhetoric has three aspects to it. There's something that Aristotle called the ethos, something he called the pathos, something he called the logos. And these are techniques of persuasion, techniques of speaking. And the ethos is, the first thing I have to do when I'm presenting to you is, I have to have what he would say is an ethical appeal. I have to appeal to you on the basis of something that means that you think that I am more ethical than I actually am. That's why we wear suits. That's why on the stage at the presidential debate, you don't see any man there in rags, do you? Or anyone there who looks scrappy. They've all got suits and they're all dressed smartly because somehow a suit says something to you about the person. What does it say to you about them? Absolutely nothing. But we begin to believe it. And another way I can make an ethical appeal to you is I can tell you that last night I was on a phone call with Bono when Bono told me to tell you the, this, the congregation this. Would you start thinking more of me if you thought that I had Bono's phone number in my Kanye West, the Pope, spoke to the Pope last night. You see, the point is this, that if the second is that I appeal to you on the basis of some association or how I dress or how I present myself to you, it's an ethical appeal designed to convince you something that might not actually be true. And the next thing about rhetoric is something that Aristotle called the pathos. I have to appeal to you emotionally. Because if I'm speaking to you and I don't move you, if I don't tell you a sob story that makes you cry, or I don't tell you something that makes you happy and smile and laugh, you might like me less. And then the logos of rhetoric is that I have to present it to you in a way that is ordered and makes sense and is logical and rational. And the problem with that is when you have a culture steeped in the ethical appeal and the pathos, the emotional appeal, it means that I can persuade people things if I can make you angry. If I can make an entire half of the country angry with the other half, I can persuade you to vote for me. If I can make you hate them, I can make you like me. If I can move you with sob stories, I can make you like me more. And you don't realize that what's going on is that steeped in our culture in 2022 is every single category of lying known to humanity, and we're fine with it. We're fine with it. And unless we can open our eyes to realizing that this is the society that we live in, we don't have any hope of having a better society. And interestingly, Paul himself understood this because Paul's writing after Aristotle writes, and Paul understood Greek literature and language and practices. And so Paul says that when he comes to present the gospel in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I'm not going to do it with clever words. I'm not going to tell you good stories. I'm just going to keep it simple so that the faith that arises in this moment is nothing to do with the story I told you or how I dressed or how well I put it together. But if any faith arises, it's all to do with the power of God being present in this minute. And if God doesn't show up, then God help us all. And so Paul says when he speaks, he speaks with words of fear and trembling. That means he's nervous because he's just given it to you simply and he's not dressing it up. And he isn't dressed up because he's certain that he wants faith to arise that lasts. And so I wonder what would happen if we began to dismantle the lies in our society. What would be left? If you took out the exaggeration and the bombasticism, if you took out the hypocrisy and the dissembling, if you took out the facade, if you took out the flattery, if you took out the propaganda, if you took out the rhetoric, would there be anything left? 
I see heads saying like this, you're right, not a lot left. And the trouble with this is that we were speaking earlier about when God begins to try and work on us, sometimes he's just trying to get to the root of something in us that is just a lie. And if we resist it, and if we've covered ourselves in these ways and techniques and schools and approaches to lying, I think it's harder for God to do his work. And the trouble is that truth is essential to community. You can't have good community if there's lies in the midst of it. You can't have good community if all I'm doing is flattering you. And if all I'm doing is telling you things about yourself that aren't true. You can't have community if I present a facade to you, if you present a facade to me. You can't have community if there's dissembling and hypocrisy. Because at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're presenting ourselves as perfect in the context of other people who aren't perfect and telling them that we are and they aren't. You can't have fellowship, you can't have real relationship without truth. And so Jesus says, I say to you, don't swear at all, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, tell the truth. Will you? Yes. Will you? No. Do I look great today? Not really. Was that paper I wrote great? It's okay. We don't talk like this. What do you really think of me? Not a whole lot. How are you doing today at the cash register in Target? Not very well. Imagine the kind of conversation that that could yield. If the person responded to it, if you're at the gym or at work and someone says, how are you doing? And you say, not well at all, rather than great. And you, great. Isn't that the typical cycle? I've even begun to pause when someone says, how are you doing? And I don't say anything. And they say, thanks for asking. And I'm thinking, I didn't ask because I didn't say it because I don't want to enter this dance. What about when we drive through people's neighborhoods and we wave at people that we hate? Anyone do that? Everybody loves every one of their neighbors, 100%. Seriously, a whole lot. So why don't you invite them in your houses? Why don't you have fellowship with them? Do you know their names? Do you know their kids' names? Do you know what their problems are, what they're suffering from, what help they need? Or is it just, let's have lunch when we don't mean it? Colossians 3, 9, 10 says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. Whatever is more than these is of the evil one. Spent a lot of time trying to wonder what on earth that is about. Whatever is more than yes or no is of the evil one. Where the lies originate? Who is the father of lies? So anytime that we give room to a lie, who are we allowing into the space? Whatever the category of lie, if it's a little, a little one, if it's a, if in our flattery, are we allowing space for him? In our hypocrisy, are we allowing space for him? In our dissembling, are we allowing space for him? In our exaggeration, are we allowing space for him? In our rhetoric, are we allowing space for him? You see, the first thing that broke into the Garden of Eden was what? It was a lie. The beginning of God's 
perfection in Eden, the first thing to break the perfection was what? A lie. And at the beginning of the early church in the book of Acts, the church is formed, the Spirit is filling everybody, they're sharing everything, they're having all things in common. God is at work, God is doing wonderful things, and the first thing to try and break in is what? It's a lie. Because Ananias and Sapphira tell a lie. There's a point at which they're asked, did you sell everything and give all the money to the church? And they could have said yes. Jesus would have said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Yes, we did if we did. No, we didn't if we didn't. But what actually happens is Ananias and Sapphira sell their property because it seems as if what's going on is a good thing. And they keep some of the proceeds back and they don't give it all in. And when they're asked, did you keep some of the proceeds for yourself? They should have said yes. And it would have been okay. But they say no, and it isn't okay. And so you see how the lie is always trying to get into ruining community. And the word to them is you haven't lied to men, you've lied to God. And so what Jesus is encouraging us here is, is to pursue a way of truth. He's saying enough of this old nonsense. Enough of these categories of lies, enough of this, I can tell you this little fragment, enough of flattering John, enough of, enough of telling Kayla something about Kayla that's not true when I should tell Kayla the truth, right? Enough of you not telling me the truth when you should tell me the truth. If you don't like me, tell me. And let's start there. I have a friend who went to live in Switzerland, and she said that the people in her community didn't speak to her for about eight years. They weren't doing this. They weren't bringing a bunt to her house when she moved in, or cookies, and saying how great it was that she'd moved into the neighborhood. They weren't saying, let's do lunch. They just didn't speak to her for eight years. And at the end of eight years, someone came to her and said, we didn't like you for the past eight years. <laughs> but now we understand you, and we understand your husband and your family. We do like you now. It was truthful, and it might mean that the world becomes a little bit more uncomfortable. We don't sanitize it for one another. But wouldn't community be better if it was like this? But you think you prefer a community where everyone lies to you. I prefer a community where we speak the truth in grace. And Jesus is calling us to a way of truth. And the trouble with that is it requires an atmosphere of truth, not one of hypocritical judgment. Because if I speak truth into an atmosphere of hypocritical judgment, I'm condemned. And so the reason I lie is because I couldn't tell you, because I know that if I tell you this, you'll judge me. But you're doing the same thing. If I tell you that I like cake, and you judge me, but you love cake more than me, that's problematic. Same with if I tell you that I have a problem with alcohol or pornography or lust or anger and you judge me, but your problem's bigger than mine, then we cannot have community. And so Jesus is calling us into an atmosphere of truth where we all recognize that we're all sinners saved by grace. Which is why Jesus, in the situation where a woman is brought to him, caught in the very act of adultery, says to the accusers, let the one without sin cast the first stone. 
And some of the problems that we have with church communities is that when sermons get preached, we don't hear them ourselves. We just see other people at fault. If every time someone speaks from here, you just see someone other than yourself. And you can draw lines that neatly put you in the right place and everyone else in the building in the wrong place. You didn't hear anything. Because the scripture says the word of God is, is sharp and like a two-edged sword. No one escapes from the prying and the searching of the word of God. And so in other words, let's live in a space where we all recognize that we all have a little bit of something. And it's okay to tell the truth because our brothers and sisters will not judge hypocritically. They will instead embrace. We're about to announce um, the beginning of kingdom communities here, which are, which are designed very much around the principles of, of the early church in the book of Acts. They're communities that will have about them some discipleship component, some community component, some worship component at the center of everything they do, something missional about them. And I'm telling you this, that I hope and pray that they're communities where we can be honest and real with one another, that we can bring ourselves just as we are to those spaces and find not judgment, but grace, and find space to be honest. And so because we recognize them as places where we, we, we can be honest, we don't have to lie. We can present our entire selves. Present our entire selves. This isn't the room for that. How much truth do we have to tell to one another? Well, let's start with how much truth we have to tell God. When we pray, do we keep things from God? Do we lie to God when we pray? Sure we do. Because we think he doesn't see it all. How many times when we pray, are we 100% honest with God? God, I hate him, her, them. Help me. God, I'm struggling with this, that, or the other. God, help me but for your presence, but for your power. I'm going the same way again and again and again and again. We don't pray like that. God, I'm broken. I've messed up. We should pray like that because the scripture says in 1 John 1 verses 5 to 10, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But here's the beautiful part. Here's the grace. If we confess our sins, what does it say? God judges us and throws us out the room. No, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So is there any kind of unrighteousness that we can't bring to God? How bad does it have to be that we can't tell him about it? How bad does it have to be that we have to lie to him when we pray? This is the beauty of confessing to God. God, you know me. You know my heart. You see me, the whole of me. You see my best self. You know my worst self. And you didn't reject my worst self. Instead, you presented yourself as a sacrifice for my sins, the sins of my worst self. 
cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this point, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is in, not in us. How much do we have to tell each other? James 5, 16, confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. For the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So that's not about isolating yourself in a space and saying, I'm not telling anybody anything. It's the opposite. It's not about creating a facade and pretending that it's not real. It's about coming to one another into proximity and being honest which is the essence of community. And you see how when we begin to lie and misrepresent and to present facades and to flatter and to be hypocritical, that it gets in the way of the perfection of community. Do we have to do it publicly? I don't know. I was asking God this. Do we have to tell everybody everything? All the time, all the dirty. I said, Lord, you tell me the truth about that. And God said, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? What was it? Any of you know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was? We know David's sin. We know Samuel's, sorry, Samson's issue. We know how many other men and women in the Bible stumble, but what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? What was it? Anybody here, put your hand up, tell me what it was doesn't say why doesn't God say because it's none of our business it wasn't our business if God wanted Paul's thorn in the flesh out everyone who thinks you've got to out everything to everybody all the time then ask God why Paul's thorn in the flesh is concealed for all time was it his height was it what he looked like was it some lust or something that he was struggling with Was it something about his past life that wasn't the bit about persecuting Christians? What was it? We don't know. So whereas you've got this tension where it says, confess your sins one to another that you might be healed, I think the scripture is also telling us through Paul's thorn in the flesh that sometimes it's nobody's business. It's nobody's business. Because if God, you think God can at any minute tell anybody everything about everybody, Paul dwells in this place. And it's a place we all have to find ourselves. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan. So whatever the origin of this thorn was, this is where it was coming from. To buffet me, to bring me down, to keep me in my place, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Anyone here pleaded with God more than three times to get rid of something that they're still struggling with? Raise your hand. All right. Does everyone else need to know about it? Maybe. Wisdom might be confessing your sins one to another, to lower the facade, to tell the truth honest and to say, look, I'm struggling with this. I'm not going to lie to you anymore. Pray for me because I believe the scripture says that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous person prayed in faith helps in this situation.
Paul pleads three times. And God responds and says, no. You're stuck with it. Why? Because my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weakened, then I am strong. I praise God for weakness. Because but for weakness, I wouldn't know Jesus. But for weakness, the poverty of spirit that the beginning of the Beatitudes starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. If we don't get broken by something, we may not find our way to God. And so why is it that having found our way to God that we construct these facades of perfection and make castles, statues around us of lies by the way we present, the way we speak, the way we flatter and deceive and therefore get in the way of real, honest community. There's a woman that took hold of Jesus' garment and found healing in his garments. And Jesus somehow knew that power had gone out from him and his disciples were like, that's nonsense. There were thousands of people around us. How did you know that somebody grabbed you? Because she grabbed him with a kind of faith that knew that there was something in that man that if she could take hold of him that she would find her healing. And if you think about what that looks like, that is the definition of radical community. It means that you look at the person next to you. It means you look at your brother, your sister, the person in front of you, and you take hold of them. And you expect from them to find God in them. And God in the honesty and the truth of that grasp that says, I will not let you go. I will not turn back even though I've just confessed my sins to you and you've despised me and you're looking down on me. I'm not letting go of you anyway. I've done something terrible and I want to hide and never see you again, but I'm coming back nevertheless and I'm going to hold tightly to you and cling on to you because I don't care because I believe that grace is greater than this. And somehow in that grasp and that proximity and the closeness that we should take to one another and it has to start in our own households. It has to start with our brothers and sisters and our husbands and wives. We can't hide there. We can't build facades there. Because if there's a facade there, then wherever, where else can we live in truth and honesty? But sometimes it might mean saying, I'm not going to lie to you anymore. But on the other hand, it might mean, you know what? You've got to bear this before God because it's none of their business and struggle with it. Because you'll break their heart by telling them the truth sometimes. Wisdom is what we're called to. But my brothers and sisters, let our yes be yes. And our no, no. And I'm sorry that that just gets in the way of modern life. It's real sorrowful and horrible to hear. No more flattery. Can you live like that? No more hypocrisy. Can you live like that? When you listen to a politician speaking, can you dissect the rhetoric? Can you 
hear what's actually being said? When some celebrity stands up and tells you something, can you neglect to hear the fact that they're a celebrity? And they listen to what they're actually saying. There's nothing left, is there? It's all our music. It's all our society. Let's not let church be the same way. Can we commit to one another to let our yes be yes and our no be no and ask God to reveal how we can walk in that way with one another and how we can take close hold of one another's garments and expect to find the Spirit of God in that person that is for their healing 